I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6 as we begin a new series this morning simply called Here. Uh, and we will be working our way through the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy for the month of January before resuming our series in the book of Ezekiel. Um, wow, I just realized how positively Presbyterian that sounds. Turn to Deuteronomy before we resume with Ezekiel. <laughs> Praise God. The gospel's on every page. Amen? Uh, So here we are in chapter 6. We'll be looking at the first three verses today. So as you're getting there, it'll be on the screen as well. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that Yahweh, the Lord your God, commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear Yahweh your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you multiply greatly, as Yahweh the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and so we say... Thanks be to God. So the book of Deuteronomy, kind of one of the oddest sounding books in all of the Bible, uh, comes from, a, it's a Greek compound word essentially, uh, but deutero and nomos are, are second and law, because what Deuteronomy is, is it is a book of repetitions. It is a, a rehearsing or a, a, a second giving of the law. And so it is a summary, if you will, of the law of God that has been present in the last few books before this section of uh, the Bible called the Pentateuch is closed. So this is a second giving of the law, a repeating of the law. In fact, we're in Deuteronomy 6. If you move back to Deuteronomy 5, you will see the Ten Commandments as Moses repeats them to all of Israel. So I want to give you a heads up that when I use the word law this morning, sorry about that, When I use the word law this morning, I typically mean the Ten Commandments. If you need kind of a a hook to hang that on, when you hear me use the word law, think Ten Commandments, okay? Now, you might know that before you called me to pastor this congregation, I was a teacher across the street at our school. Just for fun, one day early in the school year, during one of those years, I, I ran a little experiment. I told the students, I have really good news. You're about to start this new class with me, and there's only one thing you have to do to get an A. If you complete this one assignment, if you do this one thing, you will have fulfilled the entire purpose of the class. There is no point for any further test. There is no purpose in any further final exam. I can assure you I had the attention of every student in the room. Until one of them said, well, what is it? What is the thing we have to do? And I said, I'm sure you'll figure it out. (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to tell you, but but if one of you manages to pull it off, it's going to be amazing. You'll, You'll get an automatic A, no questions asked for the rest of the semester. At that point, they looked at me quizzically. Some glared at me and some just rolled their eyes and waited for the punchline they knew was coming. The point of the exercise was that when I started out, Everyone would have agreed that what I just said was good news. Okay? One thing, you you do this, 
And that's the whole purpose of the class. Good news. Until I gave them no further information about what it was. Then the good news became useless news at best. Probably bad news. And so God gives His people His law. And sometimes I think I fear the way we talk about the law-gospel distinction, we say the law is just bad news until you finally get to the good news. So you just need to hear the law so you can get around to the good news. And I would say if that's true, Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, is wasted ink. Because it's line after line of delight in God's law. And so, the question that should provoke in your heart and mine is, man, how do we get there to where what God commands would become our delight? But let me bring us back just a bit and say, there's another question in play here I want to spend our time addressing, and that is, why does God give His people His law? And again, when I say that this morning, I want you to mainly hear Ten Commandments. Why did He give them? Why did He rehearse it all in chapter 5? At least four reasons. Okay? First, because we need to know how to live. Second, we need to know what or whom to fear, because you're, you're always fearing and listening to somebody's voice. Three, we need to know who is watching. And four, our very life depends on it. Right? So, I'll, I'll, so I'll repeat these as we walk through them. We need to know how to live. We need to know what or whom to fear. We need to know who is watching and our very life depends on it. So the first reason why God gives His people law in Deuteronomy and in various other places, commands of all sorts, both in the Old and the New Testaments, is because we need to know how to live. Look at verse 1. This is the commandment. The statues and the rules that Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you. Here's the big purpose. You ready for this? That you may do them. In the land which you're going over to possess, the the promised land. Now that almost sounds intellectually insulting, doesn't it? God says, I'm giving you these commandments. Reason? Reason? So that you may do them. It almost sounds condescending, like... Like you think of like child speak, these rules are for doing, okay guys? But at a very basic level, God knows that we don't intuitively know how we're supposed to live. In fact, almost all the social and cultural debates that we're embroiled in right now have to do with somebody trying to give a a, a dogmatic statement on how it is we're supposed to live, or at least how to be at peace. And there's no shortage of, if I may Uh, say it this way, secular priests giving out laws for how to be good. Now this is why Christians have always cared about education. And sometimes we even set up our own institutions of education because we understand that there's a craving in the human heart to want to know how to live. And education is always, always, always going to teach you a philosophy of morality and how to live. And so over time, our culture has moved to, I would, I would say, a majority of saying, uh, and I borrowed this from G.K. Chesterton, to, to a majority saying that you should trust God and doubt yourself, and now we flipped it. We say you should always trust yourself and doubt God, or doubt what God has said. My, my point is, every culture teaches you, you should be trusting of some things and skeptical of others. In our present moment, we're trained to question and doubt everything God says and to trust in our own gut or emotions or the ways our experiences make us feel about things, including what God has said. 
And so this is why God calls his people in Deuteronomy 6 and other places here. Right? Come and hear and listen. And we remember again, this comes right after the Ten Commandments. So the Lord is, has rehearsed, as it were, through Moses, the Ten Commandments once more with them. These people have wandered through the desert until the death of that generation that left Egypt. Their children now stand on the borders of the Promised Land. Let's go ahead, let's go ahead and switch. Sorry about that. Their children now stand on the borders of the promised land, ready to cross the Jordan. And Moses gives them God's words one more time, this dress rehearsal. Why? Because they need to know how to live. God has brought them out of Egypt, and then he tells them, walking in my ways will be your great delight. And nobody in response says, that sounds lame. Right? Great delight sounds boring. No, they embraced it and said, we want to know those ways. So think back to my example at the beginning. They wanted to know what it was God had to say. And God, being a good God, told them. He didn't hide that information or saying, oh, I'm sure you'll figure it out. So first, we need to know how to live. Second, we need to know what or whom to fear. And then a kind of Kind of maybe a, a colon, kind of a subtitle there is, you are always obeying somebody's voice. You are always obeying somebody's voice. So look at verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Okay, so fear of the Lord. Let's start there. The fear of the Lord is probably one of the most difficult concepts for preachers in the modern West to explain. Because we sort of are conditioned, I don't know by what, maybe horror movies, but I, I'm not sure what. But we define fear primarily as terror, okay? And so one solution to this problem, when we talk about fear of the Lord, has been for Christians to say something like, well, you know, it doesn't really mean fear. It means something more like reverence or respect. Which, by the way, it it doesn't mean less than that, okay? But that leads a lot of people to ask probably the most obvious question, elephant in the room, if that's really what the word means, then why don't the translators bloody well translate it that way, right? Why do I still see the word fear in my Bible? And the answer is that while the word certainly does carry the concepts of reverence and awe and respect, certainly no question at all. The word means fear. <laughs> so they translated fear because, wait for it, it means fear. So then the question becomes, what kind of fear? Is it fear of, of terror, the way we, th we think about that? Well, let me be perfectly honest. If we're talking about unrepentant sin, then yes. You should take seriously and fearfully the reality that your sins can kill you. They can kill you now and kill you forever apart from faith in Christ. But for God's people, what does this mean? Because it's all over the scriptures, right? Fear the Lord, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. So what does that mean for us? Most basically, fearing the Lord means treating God Almighty as though you are really dealing with God Almighty. When I was living in Scotland and completing grad school, I got invited by an instructor. I still can't believe this happened. It sounds crazy. But I got invited by an instructor at the University of Oxford to come and explore some research possibilities with him. Spoiler alert, that didn't pan out. 
but before I got on the train, he told me that he was inviting me to dinner at the high table at Trinity College. I had no idea what that meant. He just said, dress nice. Okay? So I get there. We proceed down these magnificent halls at Trinity College in Oxford. We come to this door, and I'm suddenly surrounded by Oxford professors in their gowns and all their academic regalia. And we're standing at a, this, this door beside us, which opens up, and we, we step out, on, and all of a sudden we're standing on a stage in front of a few hundred students who are standing at their tables waiting for us to come and be seated. Uh, well, I know I might be slow or loath to use Harry Potter in a sermon uh, analogy or illustration. Uh, if you've seen it, it's, it's that table at the front of the room where the professors sit in front of everybody. That's the high table. That's what I learned right in that moment. And so here I am, and nobody from Louisiana, rubbing shoulders with Oxford dons and professors and feeling absolutely ridiculous and out of my element. And you know what? I was full of fear. And I don't mean stage fright. I mean that I was in the presence of greatness. At least I felt that way. And I wanted to conduct myself accordingly and like not trip over my own feet and not say something stupid over dinner. For another example, many of you were present here about ten and a half months ago when an extraordinarily beautiful woman walked down the aisle and we made vows to each other. And there was fear. Not fear of commitment or fear of marriage. But I was in the presence of beauty, and beauty has a way of rendering you frightfully speechless. I am trying, by these two stories, to get you a bit closer to the idea of the fear of God. God is our Father, not, but not our harmless, dopey uncle, right? Jesus is our brother, but not our buddy, and when we sin, ignoring God's commandments, treasuring our own selfish desires and impulses, convincing ourselves that our desires are our rights, we are reducing God to the one we judge, not the one we fear. And so, third point then, we need to know who is watching. Look at verse 2 again. That you may fear the Lord your God. You, and look at this, your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Now, we, we think of faith as just primarily something we have. You, you have faith, and that's true. But faith in the scriptures is also something you pass on and spread around. You have this privilege and responsibility to pass it on to others. This rings throughout the scriptures, right? The, that God is the God of, of you and of your children, so teach them diligently. It's going to be the focus for our sermon series this month for the next couple of weeks. That God gives this glorious responsibility, first to, to fathers and to households together, to grow together in the faith. And we're going to talk about how that takes shape in families and in households, but how it also takes shape in every season of life. So while there will be parts of the series that are maybe especially applicable to parents of younger children, Deuteronomy 6 is not just for them. It's for families with older kids. It's for newly married couples. It's for single people. It's for empty nesters. It's for widows and widowers. It's for everybody, okay? But the point I want to get it with, uh, with you right now is that you are actually always passing on or at least modeling faith to someone. Which is why you're going to hear me say this a lot in this sermon series, is that Public worship on Sunday morning, what we do here, is where you meet Jesus 
by his words in preaching, and we, we sing them as well in, in, the, in the sacrament. And then Monday to Saturday is where everybody gets to see whether or not this Jesus of yours is real. That's why every Sunday you leave with a benediction, a blessing. Please stay for that. If you look in your worship guide, the one that's in your pew when you came, uh, you'll see a description of what the benediction is and what it's for. The benediction is where the words of God are put on you. Grace and peace be with you now. With you, with you, with you. With you as you leave this building and go home to deal with temptation. To deal with the things that scare you. To deal with the things that stress you. With you as you go home to a difficult family situation. To an unaffectionate spouse. To ungrateful kids. To a thankless job. Or to a hundred other temptations, vices, troubles that confront you. With you. And so this blessing is put on you. You know why? Because you need hope to go to war with your idolatry. That's what's at the root of our sin. Is what our hearts love. Right? If a, for example, if a husband has a drinking problem, which the statistics would show uh, is, I think, uh, somebody may correct me here, but I, I think it was one in ten, if not more. Okay? So we've got in our congregation about 200. I'll let you run the math there. Alcoholism. Okay? Seriously. So if that's going on, there's an idolatry problem. You've got a man who loves a buzz more than he loves God, seeking salvation from the hurt of life inside a bottle. And in that moment, God is no longer his judge, the one he fears, if you like. His judges are his friends at the bar, or he himself becomes his own judge. And when someone threatens his rule, he rages. If his wife questions him, he rages because he's the judge. Or if he's not the judge, you know what he does? He becomes the martyr. He gets all teary-eyed and puts himself on the cross and whimpers with remorse for a few minutes and does that for two years and then wonders why he is despised. Meanwhile, the idols are still ruling and others are observing and are being discipled. Whether it's his kids or his friends or his wife or whomever else, sin is never private. Oh, can we let go of that idea? The whole idea uh, that, I, that I hear today, something's only evil if it hurts someone, okay? Uh, subcategory, all sin, okay? Sin is not private. This whole idea that something's only evil if it, if it obviously hurts somebody else in a way that I can measure by sort of modern tools is a lie because my sin, I've got bad news for you, Dear saints, my sin always hurts you. Your sin always hurts me, regardless of whether or not I can see it. So a, to go back to an earlier example, a quiet, under-the-rug, if you like, addiction to alcohol or pornography or junk food or television or social media quietly crashes into everyone around you in a thousand ways you don't even perceive. And so God says to his people, hear these words of mine. Learn them and fear the Lord, not the other things. Why? Because your children and your, I'm, I'm extending that to your friends, to as well as those around you, will always learn what you fear most. Your friends and your co-workers will always learn what you fear most. Your husband or your wife will always learn what you fear most. And so God says, give me your attention. Listen, hear, hear. The last point, God gives us his law because our lives depend on it. 
Verse 3. Look at verse 3, please. Hear therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, these commandments, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Right here in this text, there is a potential for misunderstanding. And that is, we read a text like that, verse 3. Okay, so be careful to do these things, that it may go well with you, and that you're basically fruitful, that, it, that you multiply greatly. Okay, so that means God owes me good circumstances if I behave, right? That's the sort of negotiated arrangement that's being set up there. You already know I'm going to say no. God gave us an entire book of the Bible to correct that misunderstanding. It's called Job. The righteous are not guaranteed ease of life. When the perfect son of God was judged by unjust men and suffered the death of a criminal, he forever put to death, look, not only our sins, but any notion that righteous living or good behavior guarantees you ease of life, right? So like Jesus on a cross should forever correct that misunderstanding. That being said, In the Bible, God's people often wonder aloud why when things go wrong. And so it is perfectly right and fine for you to do that too. I'm not saying that faithfully following after Jesus and then enduring some heavy unimaginable tragedy is going to make your heart scream why. That's what's going to happen. And that's okay. The Bible wonders and asks why, if I can put it that way, when the righteous suffer. And so there's certainly a time and place for that. It doesn't make sense to us when godly people suffer. It confuses us, and it should. So what does this kind of language mean? Well, James actually helps us here in the New Testament. Book of of James, who was... um, Yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm just making sure that's the right text. It is. Uh, And so... So uh, James, a New Testament author, encourages people, tells people to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's like a whole sermon encased in that, right? Only a hearer is actually a self-deceiver. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, so I, 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 I don't wonder if James had this text in mind. Hear Israel, right? Hear what the Lord said. And once you've done that, good for you, the demons believe and tremble. So hear and do. If you forget, uh, any man who's a hearer but not a doer is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and then forgets what he looks like. That would be really foolish. Go on to verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing, the perfect law of liberty. What on earth does that mean? Law and liberty don't go together, right? Law is slavery, right? Well, it certainly can be. If the law becomes the way you earn God's favor, if your record, if your good behavior becomes the way you prove to everyone, including yourself, that you are good enough, if your good works become the way that you measure yourself so that you can also measure everybody else around you, Look at all that I've done. It's so much more than all they've done. Yes, that is going to be a kind of slavery for you. So what does perfect law of liberty mean? By way of example. Husbands in the room. 
Imagine this. Imagine that you had the ability to perfectly know at every moment what your wife wanted from you. For many of you, that would feel like passing through the very gates of paradise. Because now you just know. So now you can just act and be. Right? For you, that knowledge would not be slavery. It would be liberty. Because why? You would enjoy her happiness. Which is a good indication that you love her, by the way. And a lot of marital difficulty comes from husbands who have given up any hope that their wives will ever be happy. Or wives who make it their mission to ensure that they will never be happy. But God's law is the perfect law of liberty. Because in it we see, if I can put it this way, we see the reflection of our Father's smile. And when your delight is tied up in the delight of another, it's a pretty good indication that you love them. And so when our delight is tied up in God's delight, it's a pretty good indication that we love him. Our problem, your problem, my problem is that our hearts are really easily seduced and pulled away from what God has said. And when sin and idolatry enter in, that's when the perfect law of liberty is discarded and replaced with one kind of slavery or another. To to illustrate this, if, if you lived in a community absolutely dominated by sin, you would not imagine yourself to be very free. So what I mean, if the norm in your community, is that children despise their parents, that workaholism is the order of the day, that violence is perfectly normal, that envy is perfectly normal, that theft and lies are perfectly normal. Does that sound like freedom? That's a rather horrible place to live. It sounds like misery and slavery. And so what we discover is that our life really does depend on whether or not we hear from God. Peter Lightheart writes, in the world that God made, the world that actually exists, things are not free to do what they please. They are free when they become what they actually are. An acorn is free to become an oak, not an elephant. Do you hear that? I mean, it's so good. If, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're puzzling over that, let me say it again. An acorn is free to become an oak tree, but not an elephant. So freedom is, is, in, is in developing all that God has designed you to be. And so you see, when God promises this new covenant, that he will write his law on our hearts, he doesn't mean that we will never again need to hear commandments. Ask the Apostle Paul if he still had to rehearse God's commandments with the Corinthian church. Oh yeah, there were not one, but two letters, for heaven's sake. No, the promise that the law will be on our heart means that we will live with a certain zeal for obedience because we call God's commands our delight. I can tell you... um, Christian counselors will, will, will tell you that a lot of their counseling happens because sin and idolatry along the way have convinced somebody that God is unreasonable and burdensome and unfair and unjust and uncool and frankly unacceptable. And so the goal for the, for the counselor to a counselee is that, look, by the end of this, we will, we will both uh, rejoice in who God is. By the end of it, we are both saying... No, God's words, God's laws are not bad. Because that's how acorns become happy little oak trees, to borrow language from Bob Ross. 
And that's <laughs> some of you took a second with that one. That's okay. And that's why, as we will see in the next few weeks, God's first commandment in this chapter is, Hear, O Israel, hear my words. And once you hear them, as we'll, we'll see in weeks to come, once you hear, start talking. Start talking about them. Make my words your song, your, your vocabulary, your special language, if you like, the way you communicate. My words become your lifestyle, your way of talking. Okay, God's word is my delight. Question, pastor, what if it isn't? What if I fail in this? Here's my good news for you. You will. You do. It's why we had the whole confession of sin thing at the start of the service. That's, that's me and your elders just going ahead and making the blanket presumption that there's been failure here this week for you. And oh, was this an Old Testament problem? Hello? God said, fear me, and they said, no, we're going to be afraid of Egypt and Babylon and Baal and pretty much anybody else that comes along. And God said, teach this to your children so that it will run through successive generations. You saw that your son and his son. And then what do you see? I mean, just look at the kings of Israel. You got like occasional bursts of light, but mostly a long line of failures and idolaters. God says, walk in these ways, that it will go well with you. And Israel just becomes this like billboard of disobedience and, and what the subsequent misery looks like. So the problem becomes, very often, that we want to obey, but hey, we've got enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always coming at us, pulling at our hearts. And, and behind us, looking behind us, as it were, to Old Testament Israel, all we see is our fathers departing again and again and again from his word. So what hope do we have? This is what Jesus Christ has won at the cross for you, Christian. So that when God calls you and says, this is the way, walk in it, and you say, I can't, it's hard, it feels impossible. Jesus says, I know. I've gone before you. I know the way. I know your temptations. I know your circumstances. I know your frailty. I know your family. I know also how you want to use every excuse to run from me and I will always come for you. I will always forgive you. I will always set you back on the path. You know, a lot of us probably had a great feeling of hope yesterday. <laughs> It's a new year, right? Oh, so how hopeful we are. Oh man, new year, new you. New year means new possibilities and hope for transformation. Okay, I hope that goes well for you. I genuinely do. But here's some crazy news. That is literally every day of following Jesus who keeps on renewing you in his image so you can walk in his ways with delight. So have you failed? Come and be renewed. Come and eat and drink. Every Sunday we come to this table, as it were, and we raise a toast, right? To your good health, to your good hope, to the forgiveness of all of your sins, to your growth in grace, to, to better eyes to see your sin, to the end of your self-worship, your self-advancement, your self-pity, your self-protection, to the freedom of self-forgetfulness, to the glory of Christ. And with each toast, to mix my metaphors from last week, we send another battering ram into the gates of hell and death. So hear, O Israel, and be changed.
Blessed are the eyes that see him. Blessed are the ears that hear his voice. Blessed are the souls that trust him and in him alone rejoice. His commandments, his commandments then become our happy choice. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, so we ask for your help in this. When we look at your word and what you have called us to in Old Testament and in New Testament, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbors ourselves, we confess this is impossible. And you remind us that with man, this is impossible indeed. With God, all things are possible. We need grace for this, our Father. So we ask for it now. We come to your table empty-handed, knowing that what we need most is more of Jesus. We thank you for this gift and ask for help as we follow after you. Amen.